Bows and TKOs. We are live on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon in the Valley. I'm your host, Shane Gillette. This is episode 34. And we have a, uh, the first full show, it seems like, in quite some time with the holidays. A couple weeks back to back, just for a week off. Previewing, recapping. Well, we get a loaded show of announced fights. We're recapping UFC Vegas 85, the fight night card from this past weekend, as well as the road to the UFC 2 finals that took place that was rescheduled. And then we have another Apex fight night card, Vegas 86, that we will be previewing that's going down this Saturday. So let's jump right in. Some fights that have been announced. We have Alessandro Costa taking on Alvin Borjas which will be at UFC 301. We got up next UFC 298, two weeks from now in Anaheim, California. Alexander Volkanovsky in his title rematch or title defense at the featherweight division. We have UFC 299 where Sean O'Malley, the Sugar Show, will be defending his title in Miami. Your boy is going to be there in person. Can't wait. We got... The massive UFC 300 card without a main event to be determined in April in Las Vegas. Now we have UFC 301 in Rio de Janeiro uh, going to Brazil. So that'll be a lot of fun. Alessandro Costa, I believe, the first bout announced on that card. And we also have Paul Craig taking on Kyle Baraglio, which is going to be a very fun clash and uh, measuring stick for, for Baraglio. We have Jonathan Pierce taking on Kusain Askabov, April 27th in that fight night card. The March 2nd fight night card a month out, we got Joel Alvarez and Ludovic Klein. Excited to see Joel Alvarez. He's been out for some time. And then in the flyweight division, we'll see if this fight actually happens. Schnell does not have a good background with fights actually fall falling through. So we have Matt Schnell taking on Steve Ersig. Astro Boy, who's taken the UFC by storm. And then last week, I believe it was announced right after I recorded the podcast, episode 33, but the Benoit Saint-Denis fight is officially back on against Dustin Poirier. Thank goodness, because I've paid a pretty ticket price when that fight was technically announced to go watch it in Miami. Five-round co-main. I mean, that is going to be a certified banger. Now... There's been a lot of drama about this fight, a lot of drama about how Dana White handles things. You know, Dana White versus the media. Ariel Hawani had backed his statement, I think, yesterday or the day before about what's going on here. And it's very simple. Why this is such big drama, why this is such a big thing, I never, you know, it ceases to amaze me. At the end of the day, Dana White runs a business. He has a public company, you could share with uh, trade shares with TKO that is now combined with the WW uh, combined with the WWE and everyone else. You have to continually grow and make profit for your company to have a sustainable business. There is a reason why these other fight promotions have not had sustainable businesses because yes, maybe they have paid some fighters or an average salary to their fighters more, but they have gone bankrupt and they have not been successful. The PFL has now burged, uh, bought Bellator and merged with them, but they have financial backing from Saudi Arabia that I am 99.9% sure is not profitable at this point in time. Could it be? May it be? 
there is so much to be seen and there's a lot of time that we need to have proof that that is a sustainable business. The UFC is a very sustainable business. Their fights are on every major network. They have the ESPN uh, deal. You can watch, you know, these not stacked cards on ESPN plus on demand. You got UFC fight pass. You have the pay-per-views. There's a lot of people buying pay-per-views two to 300,000 plus at the cost that they are, are pricing it as. The benefit of running a sustainable business is that you do different tactics to bring in eyeballs, to bring in excitement. Did um, Dana White, Sean Shelby, whoever in the matchmakers talk to Dustin Poirier and BSD about this fight? Absolutely. Did they give them all the specifics or that, hey, you're going to have a five-round co-main event? Um, you know, this is the situation. This is where you're going to be fighting. Do you agree or disagree? They were verbally agreeing. Dana White announced it. Was it timing against other promotions? Was it, you know, to, to sell it before the tickets went on sale? Who knows? I mean, those are all business tactics that a t traditional business would do. It's not shady. It's a business move. Maybe it wasn't signed on the verbal dotted line. But if you guys know how complicated it is to get two guys to sign on a dotted line for a fight, especially studs that have been making a, a great amount of money in Dustin Poirier, and then a, a young up-and-comer coming together, all the different variations and uh, variables that they have to deal with. You know, Dustin's taking on a guy who really hasn't proved himself that much. You know, he probably wants to get paid a certain dollar amount for his fights and to take on this risk at the point of where he's at in his career. I mean, Dustin is 35 years old. You know, that's at the very edge of his fighting prime. The amount of time he's spent in the octagon, the amount of shots he's taken... You know, he's on the wrong. It's not like he has more time than less time. So my assumption was Dana White did this for business moves, which is not anything crazy. And other people want to make it seem like this is crazy. You know, the media is against him. He's against the media. Pretty traditional business practices. He showed the text. I, I don't think there's anything wrong there. Maybe there was a lack of knowledge or understanding or confusion throughout the process. I think once... Dustin had announced that the fight was off. He was not getting what he wanted from his business standpoint as an independent contractor or fighter under the UFC. I need this amount of money. I need these things. It did not happen. He announced quickly that the fight was not happening. And was that leverage to make the fight happen? Or was that honesty? Then the UFC came back to save the fight, to save the card. There's so many variables. None of us know the answers, but this is very common for the UFC. I'm only 34 episodes in with bows and TKOs. And I have been very transparent with my viewers since probably November, October, maybe even further back, that the UFC has been announcing a ton of fights for business purposes and leverage for fighters without these ever being confirmed written contracts. And that is, is pretty standard in the UFC today. You know, Ariel Hawani has mentioned that there is a fight that's probably not main card potential that hasn't been um, uh, verbally or contractually agreed upon. I looked at the card and made my assumption of what fight would that would be. And I came down to the conclusion that it was the Divas and Figueredo and Cody Garbrandt fight. It could be another fight, uh, maybe Bo Nichols fight, uh, maybe the Sadiq Youssef, Diego Lopez fight, uh, maybe even the Jim Miller, Bobby Green fight that kind of got announced out of nowhere. One of those fights. But when you announce this, it now kind of forces the fighters into the mentality that this is their fight. They can crack, you know, they have negotiations with whoever parties, agents, managers, UFC brass, independently, whoever it is, 
to get the financial terms that they deserve or based on their contract, what they can get paid to make this happen. So to me, this is something the UFC has been doing for quite some time. When they announce big cards, you always are like, eh, due to injuries or these not actually be verbally written and agreed upon, not verbally, contractually, there is a chance that some of these fights won't happen. Now, there are fighters that are building a brand of never wanting to commit to fights and trying to use their own business leverage way too far that puts a lot of fights at risk. Somebody like Apollo Costa, who's had a lot of canceled fights, a lot of fights that were announced that he never contractually signed because he was trying to negotiate his contract. Francis Ngannou has been very transparent on two Joe Rogan episodes and other interviews that have taken place about the process that the UFC has. They lock you in in a six-fight contract so that you can't leave. You fight one fight. You know, depending on your performance, you could renegotiate, so on and so forth. To let you know, any of you casual viewers or diehard MMA fans, I work for a public company. If we do not show month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter growth in revenue and billings, and profitability, we will not have a good stock. We will not have shareholders happy. It will be seen as not a successful business. There is so much pressure to do so. Dana White is running that same kind of ship. I work in sales. I get paid not as much if I don't perform. If I perform, I can make a ton of money. The fighting game is much like a commissioned salesperson. Although I do have a salary, fighters don't. They have guaranteed negotiated uh, amounts that they get just for showing up, which you could see as their salary. And then the rest is all performance-based bonuses, right? Your win bonus, uh, fight of the night, all those different things. That is performance-based. This is pretty common in business practice. You can look at all the Fortune 500. There are those practices still going. So to me, pretty straightforward what's happening. You know, I started listening to some uh, media guys like Ariel Hawani to try to understand what's happening with some of these bouts. Realize, you know, Dana's making business moves or the matchmakers to, to do whatever he needs to do to have a successful business. The fighters are also leveraging their own versions of that as well. So lots of things happening here. No shock. I would assume Dustin had the announcement of the fight for his own independent leverage and financial purposes. But all is well. The fight is on. I'll be seeing them throw hands in Miami, in the Miami Heat Arena again. Can't wait. Outside of that, Dominic Reyes announced that he is getting, he's been dealing with blood clots and getting blood clots. That is why he's been out and will be out for quite some time. Prayers to Dominic Reyes, you know, a guy who's come into the UFC and really worked his ass off, built a brand in the John Jones fight, has dealt with injuries ever since then through the prime of his fighting career. And uh, you just don't wish that amongst anyone. He had performed well in the fights, uh, pre all this injury history. And, um, you know, you wanted to root for him as a fight fan. He is a, a pretty fresh 34 year old man. So at the edge of his prime, he has fought twice since 2020, uh, a loss to Yuri Prashaka and Ryan Spann, um, in a catchweight bout where Ryan actually missed weight. He is on four cons- uh, consecutive losses, but has not had, uh, two fights in a year except 2020, 19, and 18. And uh, it's just a bummer that he has to go through that. So prayers to Dominic Reyes. Hope to see him able to fight in the best version of Dominic Reyes in the near future. <clears throat> Blood clots is not something you could play with. Now, in the boxing world, uh, much like the BSD fight, lots of drama around the Tyson Fury-Alexander Usyk fight. 
<clears throat> and if you guys are on social media or fight fans like I am, you would have seen that this is not, um, you know, breaking news, but I had filmed the podcast last week. It's been a week. Um, the uh, Usyk fight was in danger. Tyson showed the gnarly cut on his eye. Obviously, the fight wasn't going to happen in, in the near future. So Usyk tried to seek a replacement. Uh, I think he had a guy up and prepared to be the replacement. Ended up not happening, maybe because he doesn't want to take that risk. It's not financially enough. It won't bring enough eyeballs. You know, they had already put out the trailer and all the excitement and hype around this fight. In my opinion, this is the best fight in boxing over Gervonta Ryan Davis, over the Terrence uh, Crawford, Earl Spence Jr. fight, in, in the best of the best in the boxing world. This is the fight that everyone wants to see. So I am happy that there is no replacement, although this is the second time this fight has been pushed because Fury agreed with it, uh, the fight before the Nganu fight. You know, he got tired, took some damage, and the Nganu fight had to postpone, which is pretty common sense for him. He had re retired. I don't think he was in the best shape, although he's not a guy that's got like a 10-pack and is usually shredded. He seems to be in a lot better shape and preparation for the toughest boxing match of his career. It is now rescheduled for May 18th, a great time around the Cinco de Mayo and summer festivities, everyone getting ready for summer. So happy that that's happening. Boxing, I feel like, is making these fights happen because boxing is not as popular as it once was. And for them to get eyeballs to bring in revenue, they got to have the biggest fights that they can put on. Um, and the UFC has been smoking them in that regard for quite some time. But let's jump into the, the past week in UFC action. Before we break down UFC Vegas <clears throat> 85, <clears throat> excuse me, man. We are going to talk about the road to the UFC 2 finals. Let me pull up the specifics here. Because even myself, I just watch the final matches. Um, I don't look at the, the specifics. Road. So Hold on. Road to the UFC 2 finals brackets. I believe there's like 32 fighters. Um, 32 fighters and three winners of three different weight classes. And I hate to uh, jump around here, but I have some notes on here. I forgot to put on my my uh, script of what I'm going to chat about in the announced fights. Um, but in my notes, I also have that Christian Leroy Duncan is booked against Claudio Ribeiro, which is a crazy, crazy stylistic clash that should be a fan favorite. Also on that March 2nd fight night card. So that card is getting built. Some fun young talent, Joel Alvarez, Christian Leroy Duncan, Steve Ersig. And then um, we also have some crazy moves. Albert Jiraev, due to visa issues, had to pull out of his fight this weekend. He is now on the uh, roster tracker out of the UFC. I don't know if that's going to be an official thing, if that's to be determined, if that's his contract's up. He has to figure out his visa issues and can come back into the UFC. A lot of to be determined with that one, but still a pretty quality fighter on the UFC roster, no longer on the UFC <clears throat> and a fan favorite fighter, a fighter that I've always enjoyed to watch. Let's had a tough break lately. Phil Haas is also off uh, the UFC roster, and I don't assume that will be as cloudy or gray of a conversation as the dry of one, as Phil Haas' performance has not been up to snuff, so I think that will probably be a permanent move. But sometimes these guys get announced on that UFC roster 
watch Twitter handle or X handle. And it's just because their contracts are up. So there's a lot of um, things about that that we don't have the full details on, but no longer will we have um, Albert Duraev or Phil Haas in the UFC. Pretty wild stuff. Anyways, UFC, uh, road to the UFC finals. Um, again, the results of 32 fighters in a bracket. They go in, they have the championships, then the road to the UFC uh, event is put on. This is supposed to happen in Shanghai. The event never got uh, approved in Shanghai for whatever reasons. I'm sure there's lots of politics and specifics there with what's happening in the world. Um, so they moved it to the apex. Uh, we got three different weight winners. We had flyweight, bantamweight, and featherweight. And in the, or, and lightweight. In the lightweight division, we had uh, former UFC fighter, young stud, Zhu Rong, with a round three submission via rear naked choke uh, over Shin Haraguchi, uh, one of the best uh, wrestlers. I think he was a college wrestler for Japan. Solid fighter, showed a lot of durability, but Zhu Rong was looking like a world beater as the fight continued. Um, really, it was just uh, uh, proof in the pudding of how much higher level Zhu was than Haraguchi. Um, and... Uh, I am really excited to see to see Zhu Rong back in the octagon. He's 23 years old. Birthday's in March, so he's almost 24 years old. He's already fought some names like Ignacio Baja Mondes. He lost, but fought him. He had uh, a one and two record in the UFC. Has fought already 30 pro fights, uh, most of them being in WLF WLF wars. Uh, where he had uh, the championship and defended his title and made slight work of this bracket. So a still very young and green fighter shows very good striking, heavy hands. He showcased that in this fight, was able to wear on Shin Haraguchi, who would die on his sword in this fight, and was able to get the easy rear naked choke. Uh, in the third round, it was pretty crazy. He was standing while Haraguchi's on his knees. He has his, Zhu has his neck and just lifts him up, which is not something... You usually see in the highest level of mixed martial arts as that's basically Haraguchi. It was completely exhausted and could not do anything to defend himself. Elsewhere, we had Zayi with a round one submission via armbar over Kaiwen Lee. Um, these are two guys that train together. If I'm not actually, no, that's not the, yeah, I think these were the guys that trained together. Um, but Zayi clearly looked like a better uh, fighter, got a round one finish, so he will now be entered in the UFC. And then we had Ray Saruyu with a round one knockout over Nishiyi uh, G. No, I am not announcing all these Asian names correct, but I am trying. Uh, so Suarya uh, with a round one knockout came in heavy-handed, got the early finish. We now have three new UFC rostered athletes. Um and let's see. Um, in this UFC card that we'll be breaking down, this fight night card, we also have um, a guy who had won the road to the UFC and looked very good. Uh, we'll break down his fight. Uh, but Zhang Yang Li, who is the first fight, we'll break down. And he looks like a very quality UFC proponent. So uh, knowing Zhu Rong, knowing Li... Uh, this has been a very successful breeding grounds of quality talent overseas for the UFC and is definitely something to tune into if you haven't. Um, so Yiza is a featherweight fighter. 
and Suraria is a flyweight fighter that will be now in the UFC. Both of these guys are about 9-0, 10-0, 10-1. So pretty, um, you know, young fighters in the pro world and look like quality quality fighters. So I'm excited to see what the future is with them. And that was um, a preview of the Road to the UFC 2 Finals, which I didn't know the specifics going into it when I recorded episode 33. But this was on UFC Fight Pass after the ESPN Plus card. I watched it back the next day on UFC Fight Pass. So if you're a Fight Pass subscriber, yes, there's a paywall to have that. You can watch things back on your own time when it's convenient for your schedule, like the Road to the UFC Finals. What I love about it is you get to watch the submission grappling that the UFC does and other promotions for guys like Gordon Ryan, uh, Nicky Rod. You also get the ability to watch LFA fights, Titan FC fights. You could watch back fights. So when I'm breaking them down for the pod, I could watch some film. Very worth uh, whatever the price to admission for Fight Pass is. Mine's on auto renew. I don't even remember what the cost is. It's less than $100 a year. But let's talk UFC Vegas 85. I went four and five on my picks in this card. Not a good day in the office. A little bit sloppy here. But overall, 34 episodes in, I have 210 fights picked right. 98 of them wrong. Four no contests or draws. So on the year, we're 17 and 12 and one. So five wins over um, on the plus side. We did not break down all the fights on this card. And there were some solid fights that um, I broke down as quality fights, but maybe I only knew one fighter or I just wasn't sure or there's just not a lot of film on these guys. But we had Markel Medeiros with a very good unanimous decision win over Landon Quinones. Uh, this is one of my one of my more impressive fight, uh, like one of the fights I enjoyed the most on the night. Um, Landon Quinones, a Ultimate Fighter guy. I'm a I'm a big fan of the Ultimate Fighter dating way back. Um, you know the Ultimate Fighter's quality may has may have dropped a little bit, but I used to have you know Ultimate Fighter Tuesday night parties at friends' houses. Something that I've always enjoyed, and Landon Quinones took on short notice Nazrat Haparis. And, and fought very quality. So I had high hopes for him. Although lightweight division is very tough. And Markel Medeiros is a tough opponent. Um, but Markel Medeiros was able to do a little bit more over the course of three rounds in a very tight fight. Huge win for Markel Medeiros and Landon Quinones with the second UFC loss. We had the showing out of Themba Garimbo. Round one knockout over Pete Rodriguez. Fantastic knockout. Um, Themba, you may know him from the, the story with The Rock where he was struggling for money to continue his fighting career. The Rock bought him a house. Uh, he gets a round one knockout. And the UFC brass, I think Sean Shelby specifically, said they already have him planned to fight in May, opponent to be determined. But he went on after his fight to call out everyone, says he's coming for the title. So it will be fun to watch uh, Themba's UFC career develop. We had a crazy comeback fight. Charles Johnson with the unanimous decision over Azat Moksum, who had a very, very good first round and, and kind of tapered as the fight went on. Charles was able to steal round two, win round three. That was actually fight of the night, so 50G bonus for Charles Johnson, who's been calling out the UFC for these Apex events. He says he hates them, would rather fight in front of a crowd. Either way, good day in the office for energy, Charles Johnson. And then... Maybe a guy that you've seen go viral. I'm not going to give him a bunch of time. I'm not a big fan. But Charles Radke with a round one knockout over Gilbert Urbina, another Ultimate Fighter alum. 
Um, very impressive knockout. Basically beat Gilbert with one punch. His left hand was jabbing him. I think it was a big left hook that ended up getting the knockout. So nice round one win for Charles Radke. And then we had a bummer in the main event. We had a, a no contest due to an eye poke. We see this probably once a month on UFC events if there's a full month of UFC. The UFC gloves, they, they, they kind of pull your hands out. So you'll see guys that are trying to touch hands when someone's coming, test their range a little bit, and, and you can get an eye that goes right in. Nasty eye poke. The guy's eye, you could tell, was really red, and it didn't seem like he was interested in continuing to fight. Um, so uh, I believe Muradov was the guy that got eye poked. The fight was not going to continue, but I was excited to see this fight go down. Hopefully it gets booked shortly or the, you know, these guys get a, a new opponent here shortly. But we are going to start in the prelims. A fight I got wrong. We had Zhang Yang Lee, the uh, road to the UFC finals winner from season one with a very, very quality unanimous decision over Blake Builder. And this fight was whatever Lee wanted it to be. It was his life. Builder was living in it in the octagon. And from what I've seen, this guy has the, the makings of a solid competitor in the flyweight division. It's, it's early to say if he'll be, you know, up running for a title anytime soon. But his ability to defend the takedowns, he had really good work up against the cage against a solid wrestler and Blake Builder. His movement, his game plan was on point. He showed a nice mix of speed and power and really did good mixing in body shots to pay dividends for some of his other strikes. So... Just solid performance. You know, if I'm playing UFC the video game, he had a great game plan. Attack the body, defend the takedowns, be aggressive with your striking, bring the fight to Builder. And from Builder's perspective, you know, I have a friend that was really close with Blake Builder. I'm pretty invested in his UFC journey since the Contender Series. But for a guy at 33 years old, which is in the very middle of your prime in the UFC, for a guy that is just so blue-collar with his work ethic... What I mean by that is I can guarantee you nobody outworks Blake Builder in his preparation. I mean, if you follow him on social media, he likes to post. Uh, he, he's somewhat of a character, but he is a dog, and he's showing up with his pail to work every single day. And, um, you know, much like I'm saying, I'm sure Blake is very well aware that the time for him to strike and, you know, First off, at this point in his career, save his UFC roster spot, but make a living in the UFC. The time is now. He has to make the moves to save his roster spot. Now with the loss, he's more in desperation mode for another loss. You know, it's like me in sales. If I don't hit two quarters in sales, I'm probably got some eyeballs on me. If I don't perform Q3, I might be out. He is now moving into that Q3 situation. And I just don't understand where he is especially, you know, preparing this podcast. I did see him post a little bit on social media that, that brought more light to, to what he's going through a little bit. But there's so many variables. You go into a fight, you have a game plan, and you take an early knee to the body, an early shot to the body, which, you know, I've done a, a, a smoker, you know, attempt of a boxing fight in school. In high school, I wrestled. I've been beat up. I'm a physical dude. I, you know, I grappled and messed around with my friends. I do jujitsu. I've never fought for a living and had someone just uppercut or knee me right in the liver or right in the body. Something like that. You might have a game plan. After that, you have no game plan. That's all you can think about. It's hurting. You're just trying to survive. Um, some elbows that he had up against the cage. He took that body shot. He went straight for a pretty messy single. Went up, tried to get a body lock. 
He's working up against the cage, and Jung Yan Lee's pretty long and lanky. He's pow, pow, pow. You know, these elbows are like blades. It's getting a couple blades to your head. That does not feel good. That can mess up your game plan, right? So when we are criticizing these fighters or we're saying this is the situation, it's being honest to breaking down the fight, but you have to understand the things they go through, and it is very human nature to be this way. It is not easy to fight. I do not recommend that anyone pursues the UFC as a uh, professional career. There are better things that you can do unless you really have that God-gifted ability like John Jones and you're a certified superstar. But things like those body shots or those elbows, that could have taken that could take anyone mentally out of a fight no matter how tough or skilled you are. Um, I just expected Blake, knowing of him and seeing him, to actually go out there and throw some damn combinations. Not just one jab, one strike to fill out the distance. Throw that left, follow it up, then do your, your high kicks. He threw a couple good kicks, but it was always one kick, one strike. Bring a combo that forces Lee back against the cage, then look for a takedown. Right? Um, if not successful, separate and continue to strike. Push the pace, keep him up against the cage, then look for another takedown. A lot easier said than done as a, as a guy that's not outside the octagon that didn't take those body shots and those elbows. So again... Everyone has a plan until they get, uh, you know, punched in the face. But Blake is the more experienced fighter at this point. I thought he would try to make Lee uncomfortable and not just stand in striking range for him when he's probably, Lee's probably the faster striker. So for a guy that's younger, you want to make his game plan messy. And even in the third round, you know, Blake's pretty well aware in his corners telling him, because especially in the apex, you could hear everything, that he's down two rounds. And he didn't take it up a notch and go into beast mode. You know, he uh, um, was kind of settling for nasty takedown attempts, just avoiding from getting hit. Um, he, he wasn't really looking to go for it and sell out and let all that hard work that you, sh you put in, you show to the world and that everyone is aware of, really reap its rewards. So it's just when you're a little bit emotionally vested in fighters, you see this stuff, you're like, man, I, I just don't understand sometimes. And you try to conceptualize, you try to understand – but a very tough day in the office for a 33-year-old Blake Builder who's really trying to get some comfort in the UFC. And this is the world of majority of the fighters in the UFC. It ain't easy. You got to show up. You got to be mentally sharp. You got to find the flow state. You got to overcome adversity. And that's what separates superstars versus average Joes. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm pro Sean O'Malley. You know, just like him with the the injury that he couldn't grapple before. Aljamain Sterling, one of the best grapplers, one of the best bantamweight champions of all time. He focused on his strength. He calmed his mentality. He overcame adversity. He focused on his strengths and got the knockout victory. So I'm not going to rant on that too much longer, but you hate to see it sometimes. Very good win for Lee, though. Watch out for Zhang Yang Lee. Now, statistically, Lee landed 75 total strikes, 49 of those significant. He had two takedowns in three attempts. Was able to take down the wrestler, kind of, you know, good good percentage conversion there on takedown attempts. And he also had four minutes and 29 seconds of control time. Blake landed a lot smaller volume. He had 36 total strikes, 19 of those significant, 30 less significant strikes, and 30, 40 less total strikes. He was 0 for 3 in takedown attempts. But from a, a wrestler that, you know, has shown the potential, those were, were not quality takedown attempts. But he did have five minutes and 18 seconds of control time. I'm guessing that was majority up against the cage. But John gets his first win in the UFC.
He extends his winning streak to eight. Blake N extends his losing streak to two. He is now an even two and two in the UFC. So what's next for these men? I would love to see Lee take on Lucas Almeida. And for Blake, how about Gabriel Santos? And then the last prelim that we'll uh, uh, preview before the main card. Got this fight right in the rematch. We had Molly McCann with a round one submission via armbar over Diana Belbita. This was a performance of the night. 50 G's to Molly, who is trying to tell everyone she is now more mature. She's now more focused. She's not the crazy sci uh, psycho meatball anymore. Um, but this fight was definitely not as good as the first one, which as a fight fan, I was hoping for a little bit more of a scrap. But one thing that did stay the same was that there was an early pace of just high volume, and majority of it was Molly this time. Diana was not confident just throwing strikes, which was crazy because their first time, this was Diana's UFC debut. So Diana looked a little less confident. Um, she didn't throw the big strikes that we saw in the first fight, and her grappling wasn't much improved. Molly was able to get an easy takedown. I can't remember where. I think it was some UFC betting podcast that I randomly checked just to, I like to see what other people who think they're pros or have a lot bigger social media following than I do, uh, what they're picking and why to see how it compares to mine. But I heard that um, there was a rumor that Velbita was contemplating retiring from the UFC. You know, maybe Pretty Woman in the UFC has sponsorship deals. Maybe she streams. I have no idea what she's going on. Probably makes money, more money elsewhere. And, uh, if that's the case, I'm not surprised at how this fight pulled off. You know, you're contemplating retirement. They say, hey, we'll give you Molly at straw weight, um, which is a first time for Molly as well in this new weight class, cutting down a little bit. And she's like, well, I, I did good and almost beat her in my UFC debut. Why not? Um, but yeah, just kind of a weird, another weird performance by Belbita, just like Builder. Uh, but a huge day for Molly, man, you know, on a couple of fronts, making Strawway easy for the first time, getting a dominant victory, building that confidence, talking about her maturity and how after a couple of losses, she had to look herself in the mirror and really take it up a notch. So statistically, Molly landed 43 total strikes, 42 of them significant. She had two takedowns, a submission attempt, and a minute and eight seconds of control time. Diana landed only 29 total and significant strikes. So Molly starts a new winning streak. She is 3-1 since 2022 and is 1-0 at 115 pounds. Diana extends her losing streak to two. She is 1-3 since 2022. So where do these ladies go next? I think it would be a fun scrap to see Molly take on Emily Ducate. And for Diana, if she does fight in the UFC and doesn't retire, how about Montserrat Ruiz? And I know Ruiz, I think, recently got married and changed her name, but we'll stick with Ruiz for now. Moving on into the main card, we had Natalia Silva with a unanimous decision over Viviani Araujo. And really what the takeaway from this fight is, is if you've seen Natalia Silva, man, did she pass this freaking test. She was matching with the top of the division in flying colors. Viviani has fought some of the best of the best for quite some time. Her feints, her speed, those kicks, her IQ, man, top notch, and she is rolling through the division right now. Now, Viviani, don't get me wrong, had her moments, but she wasn't able to handle the speed of Silva. Those front kicks, 
those hip twitches and feints that she does are just so fast. It's like someone trying to throw a jab as fast as you can. She's got front kicks up in your face. Now, her kicks might not be quite as powerful and knockout shots every time. She has that Taekwondo back down, uh, but her form is immaculate. Reminds me a lot of Steven Wonderboy. And taking those shots clearly wear on you. Body shots, head shots, you can see Viviani, who's one of the tougher girls in the division, wear a lot of damage. I mean, the only thing Araujo really had, which didn't make sense to me either, maybe it is these apex cards and these fighters just don't have that killer instinct because it's like so calm, cool, collected. It's not loud in there. I'm not sure what it can be. There's lots of probably psychological things. But all Araujo thought to do was pin Silva up against the cage and just lean on her. She wasn't trying to progress her positions, get into a body lock, look for a single. She wasn't really looking for the takedown. It seemed like she was just resting there and trying to win around with points via control time. That's the only thing that makes sense to me because she wasn't trying to get the takedown. She wasn't trying to land shots. It was just kind of a st sticky position. And as the fight was going, I can't remember who the ref was at the time, but you know, DC was like, hey, they need to split them up, no action. He was warning them, warning them, he split them up. The next round, Viviani went right to that position and he was more like, hey, we need something, we need something. So that was kind of a weird situation, but really this was Silva showcasing her full uh, palette of abilities, if you uh, you know want to call it like that. Her speed, her IQ, just her joy and energy, man. She is going to be fun to watch and what a massive win for her at this point in her career. Statistically, Viviani landed 63 total strikes, 26 of those significant. She did have one takedown, although it was in nine attempts. So again, Silva not only passing the striking test, but the ability to defend those takedowns. She did have six minutes of control time. And again, I think that's a lot of cage control time, not even uh, getting a takedown and being on top. Um, she also had, a, or Natalia had 65 total strikes, 38 more of those significant, and she was 0 for 1 in takedown attempts herself. So the stats make it seem pretty even, but Viviani was just kind of leaning up against the cage, not doing much. Natalia strikes, definitely uh, there was some damage being done. So Natalia extends her winning streak to 11. She's 5-0 in the UFC. She moves up two spots in the rankings to number 7. And Vivi starts a new losing streak. She is 2-3 since 2022. And she moves down two spots in the rankings to number nine. So Natalia's in an interesting spot after this win. She's either going to have to let the top of the flyweight division shake out a little bit. There's a lot of fights that have been booked. Or if she's ready to rock, she could take on somebody like Tracy Cortez. I think that would be a fun matchup. Would make sense for both women. And for Vivi, she could fight Casey O'Neill. Moving on in the main card... We had Randy Rudeboy Brown with a round one TKO over Muslim Salikov. Performance of the night, 50 Gs to Randy. And, uh, you know, what was clear in this fight is that if Randy can use his length to his advantage and land big shots early, um, he is going to be a problem. We also learned from Muslim's side that at almost 40 years old, Salikov is not going to be able to hang out with the young up-and-coming fighters that just have huge speed advantages. Because he's slick, he is talented, he's well-rounded, he has good striking, but the speed just isn't there at this point in his career. 
and Randy took advantage of that with a big, big shot. Good moment on the mic after. He says, if people could just see what I'm capable of and what I'm doing in the gym, you will see my potential. So I'm excited to see what's next for Randy. Although I picked Muslim in this fight and I was wrong. Very good performance. I am not surprised. Randy, keep doing your thing. Now, statistically, Randy landed 13 total and significant strikes with a knockdown compared to Muslim's 10 total and significant strikes. Now, Randy extends his winning streak to two. He is 3-1 since 2022. Been active, been winning. And Muslim extends his losing streak to two. He is 1-3 on the opposite side since 2022. So where does Randy go after a performance like this? I say put him in the top 15. How about Renat Fokhradinov? That's a banger. And for Muslim, if he still fights in the UFC, a matchup with Daniel Rodriguez would make sense. I think that would be fun for both men. Now, moving on to the co-main event of the evening. We had another fight I got wrong, but golly, was this a close one. We had Renato Moicano with a unanimous decision over Drew Dober. Now, this was really Drew having a good amount of, of advantages and success with the striking, but Renato finding takedowns however he could. He was grinding out Dober's energy and stamina while he had top control and surprisingly wasn't looking for a ton of submissions. Uh, Drew was doing good defending. Drew wasn't necessarily looking to get up because a lot of it was in the middle of the octagon. He was trying to defend burnout time. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of jujitsu action or a lot of striking from top control or Drew uh, uh, being in his, uh, having Moicano in his guard. Both very good uh, BJJ practitioners. But Drew did get a little sloppy. He put himself in some bad uh, uh, situations to give Moicano those opportunities to get the fight to the octagon. Because Drew is just a big, stocky, sturdy guy. He was landing big shots. Renato didn't want any. He'd find good sweeps, good abilities. The one time Drew did get a takedown, he did uh, an arm drag, like hip toss type of situation. And then he tried it again in the third round. Um, and it was just sloppy because he's tired. And he actually gave Moicano uh, the full final round uh, on top because of that, which definitely co cost him the fight. But if Drew was able to keep the fight standing, I was a firm believer that's what would have him win this fight. And I thought he, uh, to this day, after seeing this fight, I'm confident he would have won. But he did get taken down. He got taken down multiple times. That was the difference in this fight. But these are two very high-quality, lightweight fighters. Love to see them. Always can't wait to see them in the octagon. The biggest uh, storyline really on this fight was your boy Money Moicano on the mic after the fight. And uh, there was a lot of explicitives. I don't even really know what he said. I had to see what was transcribed after the fight to see what he was trying to say. I enjoy Moicano wants money. You know, even in the hype trailer before the fight, that's all he said. Money Moicano. Moicano wants money. Like, I get the character. I get the act. He's getting some eyes on him. But it just did not feel genuine to me. And I'm kind of, like, losing interest in him after the way he, he handled the mic. I think there's a mix of being a character, having passion and excitement, but being a professional while handling it as well. And I just feel like that was a little sloppy. I did like what he was trying to say at the end of it, but uh, let's clean it up a little bit. We don't need to be so sloppy. That's not a good, uh, you know, leadership impersonation that we want people to follow. Now, statistically, Renato landed 142 total strikes, only 23 significant, 
He did have three takedowns and six attempts. 50% or better. You cannot be mad about that. Drew landed 36 total strikes and significant. And then he had a takedown and two attempts. So Drew landing more significant, a lot less volume, but you know, Moicano is landing tiki-taki shots while having control, uh, top control throughout the fight. So Renato now extends his winning streak to two. He is three and one since 2022, although he did not fight in 2023. And Drew starts a new losing streak. He is four and two since 2022. He's been active. He's taken some losses. He's taken some wins, uh, but he's still in the top 15. Renato stays at 13. Drew stays at 15. And I'm ready to see what's next for these dudes. I mean, obviously, Roy not, Renato has a couple options. Uh, he's held out. You know, he wanted the money fights. He wanted the big names. He took a whole year off to fight Drew Dober. Does that mean he's going to take a Patty Pimlet fight? Does that give you confidence he's going to take these kind of fights? I really doubt it. I think he sticks with his game plan. He's going to wait for a good name. And the name that I think would make sense for both men would be a fight with Dan Hooker. Once Dan hooks up, uh, hooks up, heals up, I think that would be sufficient. But if not, I would love to see him fight Patty Pimblett. I just don't see a world where that's actually going to happen. And Drew, I'd assume uh, he'll probably be back sooner than later. I would love to see him scrap with Diego Ferreira. I know he even asked on Twitter, you know, hey, who do you guys want me to, to see me fight if I get back in there early? Two hard-hitting strikers. I think that's a fan favorite must-see fight of the night potential. So let's make that happen. And then we had the main event. We had Nasserdine Amavov with the majority decision over Roman Delidze. And this was a wild fight as Amavov was super, super close to getting a finish in round one. And I'm pretty dang positive scored a 10-8 on most of the judges' scorecards to start the fight. Not a way you want to start a five-round fight. If you're Roman Delidze, and I'm not sure what the live odds would have been to have this fight end in a finish, but they must have been pretty high. So the fact that this went to the scorecards is pretty shocking to say the least, but Amavov definitely tried to empty the tank getting the finish before the bell, and Roman Delizzi somehow was able to survive. Now throughout the rest of the rounds in the fight, both men were definitely tired and sloppy, as expected. Nasser Dean, though, did have... A better gas tank as he was not taking the damage. He was leading the dance for majority of the fight. So he was landing cleaner, more damaging shots, keeping Roman at range. Here and there, Delidzi was able to have some moments. He was able to land a random shot, get down and guard, roll into some uh, leg lock potentials, or get something going. But majority of the fight, he was just sitting there standing in the kickboxing range and getting teed off on by Amavov. He did have his moments, the ability to take the damage that he did have land against him in round one and still be able to make that happen throughout the fight. You got to give Roman some credit there. But in the third round, Nasserdine was deducted a point for hitting Delizzi, uh while his hand was down. This controversial topic of what is considered a downed opponent with your hand being down. So technically, Roman was down. Delidzi got deducted a point. That helped separate and give both fighters rest. But Roman, much like his coaches were calling for, I thought throughout the fight, needed to bring the fight to uh, Nasser Dean, land his big powerful combinations, and push him back to the octagon. And that was far from how this fight actually played out. Um, so I think for his coaches and the way it rolled out, that's just a little hard to handle. But after round one, much like I said in the Blake Builder fight, 
when you are punched in the face, your game plan could go out the window. When you're 10-8, damn near finished, it's going to be hard to bring the fight and bring your powerful combinations to the other guy who is just teeing off on you with kicks, with strikes, uh, a full kickboxing um, um, combination of strikes. But he's also really tired. You know, that takes a lot of energy out of you when you get beat down like that. He, You know, he stayed tough. He had his moments. He had a round of top control. He was able to put some submission opportunities off, look for those leg locks, but there was never really a big moment besides maybe that round where he was in top control for Roman Delidzi. This was clearly the Nasser Dean Amavov show. Now, statistically, Roman landed 59 total strikes, 34 of them significant with a reversal, and he was 0 for 4 in takedown attempts. He also had 10 minutes of control time through the fight. Nasser Dean landed 154 total strikes, 112 of those significant. He had a submission attempt, the knockdown in round one, and three minutes and 52 minutes of control, uh, 52 seconds of control time himself. So you can see over 100 more strikes, a lot more than that in significant. He had the knockdown. It was a complete control show besides maybe one round and a few minutes of control time that Roman had. So Nasser Dean, he starts a new winning streak. He moves to two and one with one uh, no contest since 2022. He does move up three spots in the rankings to number eight. And Roman extends his losing streak to two. He is now three and two since 2022 and moves down two spots in the rankings to number 10. So I posted this on Matchmaker Monday. I would love to see Nasser Dean and Chris Curtis end their beef. Let's make it happen, especially the way the last fight ended with the accidental clash of heads. Um, if Nasserdine wants to move up in the rankings, it might be a while with all the fights that are booked up. And for Roman, I think a fight with Andre Muniz, who's been in and out of the top 15, that would be a certified scrap that's must, uh, must watch and you got to tune in for. But that was um, UFC Vegas 85. Pretty solid card. Some uh, questionable performances. The showing out uh, party for Randy Brown, Natalia Silva, Money Moicano, and Nasser Dean Amavov. That sets us up for another Apex event this Saturday, UFC Vegas 86. The prelims are at 1 p.m. Pacific. The main card at 4 p.m. Pacific. I think that's identical times from last week. And also, all of this will be on ESPN+. Some good fights we will not break down uh, as we have Zach Pauga fighting Bogdan Guskov. And there was some fight changes uh, late this week. So let me confirm that these are, are still the fights here. Um, the fights we weren't breaking down had some changes. It is still uh, Poga, uh, Pogwa uh, versus Guskov. And then we have uh, Dana White Contender Series alum, Bolaji Oki. He is taking on uh, a new opponent in Timothy Kwamba. Let's see if... There's any knowledge on this guy. Never heard of him. His nickname is The Twilight. He is 24 years old, young fighter. Did fight in the Contender Series. Didn't win a contract. Came from Icon Fighting, Cage Fury back in the day. His last win was Tough Enough. Um, so we'll be making his UFC debut. Uh, that'll be interesting. Basically two Contender Series fighters. We have Trevin Giles. I believe he's got a new opponent as well. Let's 
let's see. He was supposed to fight Carlos Pratis, and he is now fighting. Oh, it still says Carlos Pratis. Uh, um, he is a Contender Series alum. And then in the main card, Albert Dryab pulled out. So Robert Brzezcik will be fighting Ihor Pateria, who I believe is also a Contender Series alum coming off a loss with a 19-5 and record. I do believe that is still on the main card, although I'm not too sure if that'll stay. Uh, I'm sure there will be more changes with all this matchmaking happening. It's only Wednesday. We still have uh, the fighters need to make weight and much, much more. But we're kicking this off. I, the first fight of the night, which still is shocking to me that this is the first fight. It'll be interesting to see if that stays or not. We got Daniel Sancora Marcos, 30 years old with an undefeated 15-0 record, taking on the Mongolian murderer, Gang. He's 30 years old with a 25-10 record. I've said this guy's name different many a times. I've heard it on the broadcast. I try to remember how to say it. A really young, something like that. Uh, you know who I'm talking about, though. The Mongolian murderer. And here is a chance for Daniel to show out again early in his UFC career. Um, and um, it's a, a chance for the Mongolian murderer to get some serious momentum in the bantamweight division, which is somewhat new for him uh, since 2022 in his UFC career. Both of these men are in their primes. There's a ton on the line, especially for the Mongolian murderer. So as we break this fight down, Daniel is a Dana White Contender Series alum. He's 3-0 in the UFC. He's undefeated on that 15-fight winning streak, and 8 of his 15 wins are via knockout. Now, the Mongolian murderer has a Sanda style. He is an orthodox fighter. He trains out of fight ready, which is somewhat of a recent change. He's on a one-fight winning streak and is 3-1 since 2022. And eight of his 25 wins are via knockout. Now, I think Daniel is just the all-around better fighter. He's full of confidence at 15-0. And he's going to look to get this fight over early. He's going to be aggressive. And I do think that since um, the Mongolian murderer is transferred to the fight-ready team, I think that's going to help him grow. But I'm betting the undefeated fighter is too overwhelming. He stays undefeated. I'm taking Daniel Marcos. We market him on that parlay, and we getting that bread. Moving on. We have Max Payne Griffin, 38 years old with a 19-10 and 10 record, taking on Jeremiah Wells, 37 years old with a 12-3-1 uh, record. I'm actually really excited for this matchup. I'd rather this be in the main card than some of the other fights. Um, but both of these men are the best versions of themselves. They're trying to do as much as they can with their fighting skill before they end the near, uh, end, get near the end of their careers at 38 and 37 years old. And breaking this fight down, Max has a first-degree black belt in kickboxing. He's got a black belt in Bakfu. He's an Ultimate Fighter alum. He's on a one-fight losing streak and is 1-2 since 2022. And nine of his 19 wins are via knockout. Now, Jeremiah trains out of Renzo Gracie, Philly. He has a black belt in BJJ. He's a Cage Fury alum and former champion. He's on a one-fight losing streak. And he is 3-1 since 2022. Five of his 12 wins are via knockout. Four via submission. 
So nine of his 12 wins are via finish. Now, this is going to be a back-and-forth tit-for-tat showdown. Um, I, From what I saw in Max last year in 2023, I thought he just had a ton of improvement and swagger about the way uh, he was in the octagon. He did be a very quality Tim Means, the dirty bird. Uh, he did take an L from a very good and young Michael Morales, but battled through all three rounds. For that reason, I'm taking Max Griffin. We are putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Moving on. We got Devin Brown Bear Clark, 33 years old, with a 14-8 record, taking on Marcin Procnio, who's 35 years old, with a 16-7 record. And this is just another very even matchup. These are two hard-hitting light heavyweights in their primes at 33 and 35 years old. They're doing their best to make that hard work pay off thus far in their UFC career, stack together some wins, and move up that ranking, try to get in the top 15. Breaking it down, Devin has a wrestling style. He trains out of Jackson Wink MMA. He has a JUCO wrestling background out of Rochester Community College. He was a two-time All-American there and was a champion in 2009 and he placed fourth in 2010. He is an RFA alum and former champion. He's on a one-fight losing streak and is 2-2 two and two since 2022, and four of his eight losses are via submission. Now, Marcin has a Kaioshin Karate style. Got a black belt in Kaioshin. He has a blue belt in BJJ. He is a 1FC alum. 11 of his 16 wins are via knockout. Four of his seven losses are also via knockout. He is on a one-fight losing streak and is 1-2 since 2022. Now, I think this is going to be a fun fight as long as it stays on the feet. If they're both striking, kickboxing exchanges, I do think that Marcin in this fight can have a slight striking advantage by the slightest, but I do think Devin is more of a durable fighter. He can withstand Procneo early, look to get him down, mix in some grappling, get some top control time, get some grounded pound to maybe get that striking opening later in the fight. For that reason, I am taking Devin. We are marking the brown bear on our parlay. We getting that and we getting that bread. Moving on in the main card, we have Armin Superman Petrosian, 32 years old with a 9-2 and record, taking on Rodolfo the Black Belt Hunter Vieira who's 34 years old with a 9-2 record. Now, this is more of a clash of style showdown. We get to kick off the main card with. If Armin's going to be able to keep this fight as a kickboxing fight, I do think this will be a pretty easy win for him. And if Rodolfo can get the fight to the octagon, get some submission work going, I think he will find a way to get a potential submission, uh, exhaust Armin, and he just hasn't shown a, a high uh, grappling defense or uh, ability in his fights thus far. Now, I do think at some point Rodolfo will get the fight to the octagon, but I don't think he is able he is able to get will be able to get him down to the canvas very often early in rounds with a ton of control time. I believe Armin is going to keep Vieira at range, make him eat a lot of shots when he tries to close distance. He's going to need to keep moving. Keep his feet moving, stay on your bike, and out cardio Vieira. If he does that, I see Superman getting a nice knockout finish 
or outpointing him on his way to victory. But breaking this down, Armin has a Muay Thai and kickboxing style. He's a Dana White Contender Series alum. He's on a two-fight winning streak and is 3-1 uh, since 2022. Six of his nine wins are via knockout. Meanwhile, Rodolfo has a BJJ style, obviously with the black belt if he's the black belt hunter. His grappling accolades are very nice. He won the 2015 ADCC Worlds. He also won the Worlds in 11, 2011, 12, 13, and 14. And in 2011 and 15, he won in the absolute categories, which is very, very impressive. Now, two of his last three performance, performances have been performance of the night. He's been showing out. He's on a one-fight winning streak and was 1-1 one one since 2022. Eight of his nine wins are via submission. Now, the last time Armin fought a grappler-heavy fighter, he lost to Kai Alberaglio via unanimous decision in 2022. But he is the better striker than Rodolfo. I think Armin is going to do work with his kickboxing, find a path for a finish, and for that reason, we are taking Armin, we marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Moving on. We have Michael the Menace Johnson, 37 years old with a 22 and 19 record, taking on Darius Beast Mode Flowers, 29 years old with a 12 and 6 record and one no contest or draw. Now, this is going to be a low key banger of a fight. I think Michael's going to be able to let his hands loose. Um, taking on a less experienced fighter who is a striker-heavy fighter. He's new to the UFC, and this should be a fun striking back-and-forth affair. Breaking this one down, Michael is a southpaw fighter. He trains at a Kill Cliff FC. He has a Juco wrestling background at a Merrimack Community College. He's an Ultimate Fighter alum and champion. He is the 2017 Fight of the Year against Justin Gaethje. What a war that was. He is on a one-fight losing streak and is 2-2 two and two since 2022. Nine of his 21 wins are via knockout. Nine of his 19 losses are via submission. Now, Darius is a King of the Cage, LFA, and Contender Series alum. Eight of his 12 wins are via knockout. Five of his six losses are via submission. So they win via knockout, lose via submission, and he is on a one-fight losing streak. He is 1-1 one one in the UFC. I doubt we see submission grappling ability here. But the benefit for Flowers is he is just entering his prime. He has the age advantage. Johnson, 37. Darius, 29. Johnson, although uh, he, he's not quite 40 at 37, he has been through so many battles and taken a ton of damage throughout his career. He has been through wars as much as anyone that I could remember in the UFC. If you could find his chin and land power shots, it will be interesting to see how much Johnson could take in his 42nd pro fight. That's a lot of pro fights and a lot of shots to the brain. Now, I do think Michael is more skilled and more well-rounded as a fighter and striker. If Johnson was looking to get a win as easy as possible, he would probably look to get uh, his wrestling going, get some takedowns early and often to tire out the younger flowers and avoid the power shots. 
But knowing the showman that Johnson is, that won't be the case. He's going to stand in the pocket and clang and bang. So watch out. But I am taking the legend, Michael Johnson. I am putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down and we getting that bread. A lot of confident picks in this one so far. Moving on, we got three fights left. We got Gregory Robocop Rodriguez. Ooh, I love watching this guy fight. 31 years old with a 14-5 and record, taking on Brad Tavares, 36 years old with a 20-9 and record. Now, here is another very fun and wild scrap we're about to get. Two men, very durable and tough. They like to pull their opponents into the deep end by outworking them and exhausting them. And they just love to sit there and scrap, man. They like to put on a show. They bring a ton of volume over the course of three rounds, so don't blink. Breaking this one down, Gregory trains out of Killcliffe FC. He has a black belt in BJJ. Since he's been in the UFC, three of his seven fights have been fight of the night or performance of the night. He shows up. He shows out. He's a jungle fight, island fights, contender series alum, and LFA alum where he was a former LFA champ. He's on a one-fight winning streak. He is 3-2 since 2022. Nine of his 14 wins are via knockout, three via submission, so 12 of his 14 pro wins are via finish. Very impressive. And three of his five losses are via knockout. So to knock out or to be knocked out. Now Brad trains out of Extreme Couture. He's an Ultimate Fighter alum. He's got the second most wins in UFC middleweight division history with 15. He's got the second most fight time in UFC middleweight division history with over 4 hours and 56 minutes. He has the most decision wins in UFC middleweight division history with 13. The second most decision wins in UFC history overall behind Neil Magny. He has the most decision bouts in UFC middleweight division history with 17. He's got the most unanimous decision wins in UFC middleweight division history with 10. He's tied with Christoph Jotko for most split decision wins in UFC middleweight division history with three. He's on a one-fight winning streak. He is 1-2 since 2022, and four of his eight losses are via knockout. Now, I think RoboCop striking is going to be a lot for Brad to overcome in this fight. He's going to have to be creative with his game plan. He's not going to be able to just sit in the pocket and exchange. Maybe mix in some takedowns, get some clinch work, get some nice leg kicks out early to take away that power from Gregory and get that leg out from under him. Brad definitely can look to tire out Gregory, wear on him over the course of the fight. I just think RoboCop's going to be in his face, bring him the fight, um, and uh, I think he's going to be landing bombs. This is a very fun and tough fight to pick. I am taking RoboCop, but I am avoiding him on a parlay if possible. Moving on to the co-main. We got Dan, 50K Ige. The 32-year-old fighter with a 17-7 and record and the number 13 next to his name. Taking on Andre Touchy Feely. 33 years old with a 23-10 and record. Now, I can't remember off the top of my head, but Dan Ige was originally booked against a different opponent. 
And this is a short fill-in fight for Andre Feely. It was supposed to be Lerone Murphy. And boy, was I excited about that. So about mid-January, Andre Feely is filled in. So he's had about three, we'll just say three weeks to prepare for this fight. And what a fun co-main this is going to be. We got two studs in their primes, 32, 33 years old. They're looking to put on the best performances of their career so they can move up and fight in the top 15. Now, Dan, he trains out of extreme couture. He has a black belt in BJJ, a brown belt in judo. He has a D3 wrestling background uh, out of Wartburg College. He's an RFA, Legacy FC, Cage Fury, Titan FC, and Contender Series alum. Five of his 17 wins are via knockout. Five via submission. So 10 of his 17 wins are via finish. He's on a one-fight losing streak and is 2-2 two and two since 2022. Now, Andre trains out of Team Alpha Male. He is tied with Hakeem Dawoodoo for the most split decision wins in UFC featherweight division history with three of them things. He's a Cage Fury and King of the Cage alum. He's on a one-fight winning streak and is 2-2 two and two since 2022. And looking at this fight overall, I don't think the short notice is going to help Andre, especially as Dan was practicing for preparing for another very skilled striker in Lerone Murphy. So he does have the odds against him, in my opinion. I do think Dan, in his UFC career, has better quality wins. Guys like Nate Landaware, Nate the Train, Damon Jackson, Gavin Tucker, and a legendary Edson Barboza. Now, Andre has wins over the likes of Bill Algeo and Charles Jordan, quality wins. But when it comes to the striking, I think Dan's jab is really going to control this fight. He's going to have control of the middle of the octagon, and it will do wonders for him in this fight. If Andre is going to win, he's going to have to bring the fight to Dan, overwhelm him with, overwhelm him with powerful combinations and takedowns, and he is really going to have to take some chances in this fight. I don't think that is going to uh, be the, the, the way it plays out and it's going to work for Andre. There is a chance. I could also see this being a very close striking back and forth affair where it's another close split decision. Andre typically fights in those style of fights. Dan has in the past as well. I hope that's not the case, but I am taking 50K Ige and I do expect another 50K for Dan Ige. We put him on that parlay. We marking that ish down. And we getting that bread. Moving on to the main event. We have Joe Bodybags Pfeiffer. 27 years old with a 12-2 and record. Taking on Jack the Joker Hermanson. 35 years old with a 23-8 and record. And the number 10 next to his name. Now here, this is the coming out opportunity for Joe Pfeiffer. Like Dana White said in the Contender Series... Be like Joe. This is his first ranked opponent in his fourth UFC fight since his contender series win. And as we know, Joe is a very powerful striker, a good grappler who is now taking on a savvy veteran that didn't fight in the last calendar year, had a rough 2022. He took losses to Roman DeLidze by not uh, TKO and Sean Strickland, which was actually a split decision uh, loss. Joe recently has told his stories in a lot of interviews. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast as well. If you want to learn more about him, check it out. But he is very, very confident in this fight, and it's hard to blame him. 
He's even had some submission grappling wins against some quality grapplers. The guy is cruising at 27 years old, so watch out. Breaking this down, Joe is a ring of combat, Cage Fury, and Contender Series two-time alum. The first time wasn't enough. He figured it out the second time, went for the finish, and Dana uh, made that viral clip be like Joe. Now, he is on a five-fight winning streak. He is 4-0 in the UFC. If uh, you want to breed confidence, get on a streak like that. Eight of his 12 wins are via knockout, three via submission, so 11 of his 12 wins via finish. And Jack is a Cage Warriors alum. He's a former Cage Warriors champion with two successful title defenses. He's also a Bellator alum. He has the most significant strikes landed in a five-round middleweight bout. He had 148 of those against Ronaldo Souza. And in 2019, he had upset of the year against Ronaldo Souza. He's on a one-fight losing streak. He has one and two since 2022. 11 of his 23 wins are via knockout, six via submissions. So 17 of his 23 wins are via finish. He does have a two and a half inch reach advantage and a five and a half inch leg reach advantage. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some leg kicks going in this fight by Jack Hermanson. But at the end of the day, I really think there is levels to this game and Joe is on another level. He still has so much room to grow, which makes it fun. But Jack struggles when he can't get opponents down, get the takedowns, have the top control, unless he's more of a technical and speedy striker, which I do not think will be the case. We saw him against Edmund Shabazian get outstruck and teed off in that fight. So I think the mix of power, speed, and grappling is going to overwhelm Jack. I do think that Joe looks to get Jack down early, wear on him a little bit, show that he's the better grappler and show that he's better everywhere. And I, I would expect the result of that to end in a round two finish. For that, I'm taking body bags. We putting Joe on that parlay. We marking that ish down and we getting that bread. But that is the UFC Apex card prepared. This weekend, I am going to Supercross in Glendale um, here in Phoenix to go watch the Supercross race. So I'll be watching this on demand after the race. Um, and I will be going rocking the Jazz hat to the Jazz Suns game this Thursday. Go, Jazz, go. In terms of MMA, next week we have another pay-per-view card, the second of the year, UFC 298 in Anaheim. This will be headlined by Alexander Volkanovsky and Ilya Toporia. I'm your host, Shane Gillette. See you next week.